while they're receiving that offering. Uh, today, we're privileged to have uh, Mike Canham, Dr. Canham, uh, who's on the faculty of Cornerstone Seminary that meets out of community church in Vallejo. And uh, Mike has quite a background in education, graduated from Bob Jones University with his bachelor's, got a master's degree from Master's Seminary, and then went to Philadelphia to Westminster where he got his doctorate. And uh, uh, a wonderful brother has preached here before and uh, is having a wonderful impact in the seminary. Uh, and every student that has passed one of his classes is very thankful uh, because he's brutal. He's hard on them. And, uh, but they love him anyway. And so uh, we're delighted to have Mike. We want him to come and preach for us. Well, it's truly an honor uh, to be here with you. Uh, Phil is one of my favorite sparring partners. We don't get enough opportunity to do that. He always wins, which is good. I, but he gives me more material I can use on the next guy. So that's the... That's the but it is, um, it is truly an honor, um, really an honor to be here with you. Uh, Pastor Phil mentioned that I'm a professor at Cornerstone Seminary and very, very grateful for that. I've been there, this is the beginning of my ninth year, and I feel extremely honored to be here for several reasons, among them I feel like in coming to the seminary, I'm reaping the fruit of what was built by Pastor Steve Fernandez into Community Bible Church for a huge number of years before I even got there. But his ministry resulted from this ministry. He and others like him that are pastoring all over this area are in ministry because you guys had a pastor that had the eyes of Jesus. That way back at the beginning of this church saw what Jesus could do with a bunch of converted hippies. Isn't God great? You know? It's, um, and I, I wasn't here in those days, but I, I, get, to, I get to receive the fruits of what God did in those days in what I do every day at our seminary. So it is truly an honor for me to be able to be here with you. I want to take you to one text this morning. We've observed the Lord's table together. We've prayed together. We've sung together. And there's a common theme that has pulled all three of those elements together, and that is there's been a real focus here this morning on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to take you to a text this morning that is one that I would call one of the holy of holy texts in the New Testament. When you encounter this passage, we're immediately aware that we are walking on holy ground. And there's a couple of extremes that can happen. One is that we can just flippantly handle the text and do it injustice or the other 
would be that because of its sacredness, we just avoid it. And I think that second extreme is probably more common in churches that love and revere the Bible. We're looking at the verse, and there is so much here that is beyond our understanding that sometimes we just ignore it. But we do so to our peril. Because this text, as much as any other text in the New Testament, gives us insight into why Jesus Christ came. And specifically, what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for our sins. So I want to read the text for you. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now from the sixth hour, which would be the equivalent of our 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want to be able to exalt Christ to you this morning. But to do so, I need His help. So let's stop, if we could, for a moment and pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of the Gospel. I pray, Lord, that You would give me Your wisdom and Your power and Your enablement. Hide me behind Your Word. I'm simply a clay pot here, pot here this morning, but uh, Lord, these are Your people. These are people who love You. These are people who have been redeemed by You. And so I pray that You would help me to exalt You, Jesus. Spirit, I pray that You would teach us and comfort us and strengthen us and exhort us in ways that only You can. So I ask for Your help now. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. When I was pastoring back in New York a number of years ago, I had the privilege one spring in the weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday to preach a series of messages on the seven last words of Christ on the cross. Um, this one is the fourth of those seven. It is in every way the central one. I would argue that the first three words of Christ in the cross lead up to this one. And the last three words, I thirst, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit, grow out of this one. So you almost have it set up like a pinnacle. You have the first three leading up to it and the last three leading out of it. This one is, in every sense of the word, the central word of the Lord Jesus Christ in the cross. But since it is the fourth word, we need to put it a little bit in its context of what had gone on beforehand. Jesus, as I already mentioned, had uttered three words before this. The first of these was his repeated prayer. He kept on praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A prayer that in a very real sense was a prayer concerning himself. Basically, when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, he was praying, and condemn me. Because the only way 
God could forgive any sinner under any circumstance without violating his holiness would be if Jesus Christ took the place of that sinner. So he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the second case, you have two competing requests for Jesus represented by the thieves hanging on either side of him. One of them kept on saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. If you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. Get off the cross if you really are who you say you are. The other one kept on praying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And these two requests repeatedly are coming at Jesus from either side, one of them telling him to get off the cross, the other one telling him to stay on the cross and win a kingdom. And then when Jesus finally responds, he says, Amen to the one who said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. That was Jesus' resolution. He wasn't going to succumb to the temptation of getting off the cross. He was going to stay on and he was going to win a kingdom. The third word on the cross had to do with Jesus' mother, John the Apostle, the only disciple that we know of that was there when Jesus was crucified. Jesus commits the care of his mother over to John the disciple. And at least two things from that. Number one, even in his final agony, Jesus was fulfilling his sonly, for lack of a better word, responsibility to make sure that his mother was taken care of by giving her to the care of John the apostle. But when he said, woman, behold your son, Jesus was in a very real sense ending a human relationship. If there was one person at that scene that could have stolen the glory from Jesus, it was his mother. But she also needed to submit to Jesus as her Savior. There is one mediator between God and men, and it's not Mary. It's the man, Christ Jesus. So there's one thread that pulls all three of these words, these first three words together. In each case, Jesus, even when he's enduring the utmost agony, physically and leading into spiritual agony, even while he's in the most difficult circumstances, his prayers were for others. His concern was for others. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There's a song we sometimes sing, Above All, and the end of the one verse says, He thought of me, above all. There's a lot of truth in that. Because his focus, even when he was dying, was on the people he was redeeming. But in this fourth word, the scene dramatically changes. Jesus is now praying concerning himself. There's also some other scenes that have changed. We read in verse 45 of Matthew 27. And by the way, we should make a comment. This, this saying is utterly unique among the other seven. It's the only one that's actually repeated in two of the Gospels. We're looking at the version of Matthew's Gospel this morning. Mark also includes it. And it's the only saying that either one of those two Gospel writers include. The other three, or the other six, three of them come from Luke and three of them come from John. Um... So, but this is the only one that's repeated in two Gospels. 
And it's the only one in which the words Jesus originally uttered in Aramaic or Hebrew are preserved. It's almost as if Matthew and Mark respectively are like, these words are so sacred, we're going to tell you what they mean, but we're not going to leave them out of the translation. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scene had shifted dramatically from the first three words. At noon that particular day, uh, darkness had descended upon the earth, a miraculous darkness. There is no way in the world you can identify this in any way as an eclipse. Among other things, this was the time of the Passover, which was a full moon. You don't get eclipses at that time of the year. But even if you could somehow ascribe it to an eclipse, this one lasted three hours. This is utterly miraculous. And commentators and biblical, uh, pseudo-biblical scholars who try to explain away the miraculous are only displaying their unbelief rather than simply accepting the text for what it says. And I find this significant. Remember, Jesus' birth was heralded by a miraculous light in the middle of the night. It's remarkable and fitting that his death would be heralded by darkness in the middle of the day. Darkness that in scriptural terms is a sign of judgment, of God's judgment. It also was God hiding from the faces of the mockers the ultimate agony of his son. And in the midst of that time of darkness, three hours when it came to its climax, Jesus cries out with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther, in the years before his ultimate conversion and freedom that came when he discovered Romans chapter 1, was driven to study this passage. Fasting in prayer for a number of days until finally he threw up his arms in despair and said, God forsaken of God. Who can understand that? And we must confess in some ways with Martin Luther that we, you and I in this room, will never be able to fully understand what these words mean. We would have to live a sinlessly perfect life and endure the agony of hell in that capacity, to be able to fully understand what Jesus meant by these words. Certainly none of us have lived a sinless life. We're all sinners. And praise God, because Jesus Christ uttered these words. If you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you will never know what it's like to experience agony in hell. So we might as well confess at the beginning that there, are, there, that there is an element of what Jesus says here that we will never fully understand. And a number of people have made certain attempts to try to explain what's going on that fall far short of biblical reality. Some people say that there was a, uh, there was a division in the Trinity, that Jesus Christ at this point stopped, stopped being God. Well, let me tell you this, folks. If Jesus Christ stopped being God, he was never God to begin with. It is utterly impossible that Jesus ceased to be God or that there was an actual split in the Trinity, meaning that Jesus ceased to be God at that point. Some people say Jesus Christ was delirious at this point, was just babbling out the first psalm that came to his mind. Other people say that he was angry with his father. He felt betrayed by his father, that he felt the father had been mistreating him. 
all of these suggestions border on, if not actually cross the line into utter blasphemy. So in some ways, it's easier, easier for us to say what this text doesn't mean than to say what it does mean. But I think we can talk about at least something of what this text means. And I want to suggest to you in the, the thesis I want to give to you this morning is that while we will never fully understand fully what is going on with these words, we can understand at least three things that Jesus' death meant in regard to our sin. At the very least, this text gives us insight into what the death of Christ meant for our sin. It also tells us something of the distance Jesus Christ traveled to save us from our sin. Luke's gospel, as his theme verse tells us, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, us, you and I in this room. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ would never get to the place where he was able to save anybody until he had gotten to the place of God-forsakenness. Because that is what is in store for every single person outside of Christ because of their sin, and that is what was in store for us apart from Jesus' work on the cross. So these words represent something very real, as, as Larry reminded us so potently in the time of our Lord's table. This was a real death. More real than any kind of physical death you and I would ever experience. Because what made this for Jesus so agonizing wasn't even the physical suffering. There have been many martyrs throughout history that have suffered equally or even more physically than Jesus did. Some of them for wicked causes. What made Jesus' death profoundly significant was not the physical suffering, as important and as vital and as crucial as that was, because there is a physical consequence of sin. But it was this place of God-forsakenness. Three things that I think we can mine from this verse. Number one, Christ was separated from the Father because of our sin. Well, on the one hand, we cannot accept the heretical statements regarding a split in the Trinity and, and, and those other types of things I mentioned earlier. We also cannot go to the other extreme and minimize the force of what these words are saying. When Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was speaking of a condition that actually existed. He is not exaggerating. He is not crying out in agony something that isn't true. He is, at that moment, experiencing some kind of separation from his Father. Now we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what did this look like for Jesus? And there's, a, there's an awful lot that we can see here. For example, uh, let me have you turn over to John 16 just to illustrate with one other passage. And while you're turning there, uh, let me tell you that, that um, Jesus Christ's life and ministry was pervaded with prayer. This is a point of application 
uh, that's related to this, every single event that Jesus Christ did in his life and ministry was bathed with prayer. Luke's gospel is the one that especially brings this out, where Jesus is praying. Uh, the night before he chooses his disciples, he's praying, and when you see the kind of people that he chose, you knew why he spent all night praying before he chose his disciples. Everything in his life and ministry was bathed in prayer. This notwithstanding, not, not an exception. I don't know if you've noticed this, but three of the seven last words of Christ on the cross were prayers. The first, the fourth, and the seventh. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All three of, the, uh, all three of these were prayers. What's significant, and I need to spend a little bit of time, you got more notes there that you can, you can look at at some point before we look at John 16. But Jesus spent a lot of time doing what a Jew would normally never do. A Jew would never refer to God as his father. Jesus repeatedly did so. In fact, his most common address to God when he prayed, in fact, I would say virtually every time he prayed, Jesus addressed God as his father. What's beautiful about this is when Jesus taught us to pray. How do you begin it? Our Father. It's not presumptuous for us to pray our Father. It's possible because of what Jesus accomplished. So that's a whole other sermon. But I, I want to highlight that Jesus' life was pervaded with prayer and that prayer life that Jesus Christ exhibited was always conscious of the fact that he had this relationship with God as his father. And no matter what happened with people, Jesus Christ experienced incredible monumental rejection. He, he, he experienced determined opposition against his ministry from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders in Israel. In fact, in the verse that I want us to look at in John 16, 32, this is the night just before Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is the night before Jesus is crucified and he makes this statement in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. This is Jesus speaking to his closest followers, his closest friends, his disciples. And he said, the hour is going to come and you're all going to run. You're not going to be there. You're going to leave me alone. But then he follows up with these significant words, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus Christ could always count on the presence of his Father with him, even when people abandoned him. But now we see even that has changed. When Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a change in the relationship for the one and only time of, in all of eternity. We need to stress, though, what the significance was of the change of this relationship because Jesus stood in a different relationship with his Father at this point. It was a judicial relationship. The Father was the judge. And Jesus stood before the judge 
and I want to be careful, with, careful but definite with my words here, he stood before the judge as one who was guilty. The word as is very important in that sentence. He stood as one who was guilty. Jesus Christ at that point occupied before God the same position that every single sinner occupies before God as under his judgment and therefore abandoned by God. So there was, number one, a real separation from the Father. But this is where our second point is so vital because if we leave it at that, we've left out the most important truth because Jesus Christ was not separated from the Father because of his own sin. That was the mistake Israel made. We don't have time to delve into this passage at length, but Isaiah 53, which is, I think, one of the passages in the background of Matthew 27, 46. Isaiah 53, we all know verses 4 through 6, but verse 3 has, and this is Israel's confession, by the way. Israel's confession, they're saying, we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted. If I can paraphrase that a little bit, what Israel is saying is we reckoned Jesus to be under the judgment of God. Now here's the question. Was he? Yes. He was under the judgment of God. But they assumed it was for his own sin. And so we fast forward ahead 700 years after Isaiah writes those words and you have Jesus in a mock trial before the religious leaders and the, they can't trump him up on uh, evidence from false witnesses so finally the high priest does something else illegal. He puts Jesus under oath and says, I am charging you to tell us whether you are the son of God. Now of course if somebody asked me that question in the way it was worded and I said yes, what would I be guilty of? Blasphemy, and I should be killed. Jesus answers the word, the question in the affirmative. He's the only one who could answer it in the affirmative. That's the point. You've said it, and he quotes Psalm 110 and uh, Daniel 7 to support that, and the high priest tears his, his uh, garments and says he's blasphemed, we don't have any need for further witnesses, and they put Jesus on the cross because he claimed to be the Son of God and, because, and no one who claims to be the Son of God is exempt from the judgment of God. That's what everybody thought. Except there's one verdict that hasn't come back yet. God's. That happened at the resurrection. God brought Jesus out of the tomb, among other things. Paul opens the book of Romans with these words, that Jesus was declared to be the... Uh, uh, declared to be the, the seed of David according to the flesh, but was declared to be, doesn't say he became, but declared to be the Son of God by what? The resurrection from the dead. Among other things, and there's a lot the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished, but one of the things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished was that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Son of God, which means that when he claimed to be the Son of God at his trial, he was not speaking a blasphemous lie. He was speaking the truth. 
but he still experienced the judgment of God. The only way you can put those two things together is our second point. It isn't just that Jesus was separated from the Father because of our sin. Number two, he substituted himself for our sin. And that's the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God forsakenness is the natural and inevitable result of anyone who sins. God's hand is not short that it cannot save. His ear is not stopped that he cannot hear, Isaiah said years earlier. But your sins have separated between you and God. Sin does that. And the, the most dramatic effect of sin isn't even the physical effects of it. It's the spiritual damnation that results. And so if Jesus Christ is going to redeem us from our sins, he has to experience in himself the same penalty for our sins. He took our place. That's the gospel. He took my place. He took your place. That's what Jesus is getting at with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is because you have taken upon yourself the sins of the world. And we could ask all sorts of biblical writers, what did Jesus mean when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Moses, 1,500 years ahead of the time, who was one of those Old Testament saints in heaven on credit, as it were, <laughs> as one old saint used to put it, in heaven on credit based on the work of Christ that would be done in the future from his standpoint, if you were to ask Moses, he would say, well, you know, I don't think I fully understand what all those words mean, but I do know this. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul quotes those words in Galatians 3 when he says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We could quote Isaiah right after the words we esteemed him, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Six times in three verses you have he for us, he for us, he for us in Isaiah 53. And what's amazing did you ever notice in Isaiah 53, which is a prophetic passage, why all, that all the verbs are past tense? Why is that? Short answer. Israel is one day going to confess this. These are Israel's words. Hasn't happened yet. But when it does happen, they're going to be looking back on the work of Christ as a finished reality and going to say, boy, we blew it. We thought he was under the judgment of God, and he was, but we didn't realize that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It's a prophetic passage looking ahead to the cross work of Christ, but it's also a passage that looks back to the cross work as accomplished when Israel finally confesses it. They finally get it. It's an amazing thing about hermeneutics and tenses of verbs and why they're important, but that's another sermon. Isaiah he for us, he for us. We could ask John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
We could ask John the Apostle, what did Jesus mean when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And John would say, you know, I don't get the full gist of it, but I know that he was manifested to take away sin, and in him is no sin. I also know that he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I also know that in love is this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We could ask the writer of Hebrews, Barnabas or whoever he was, what this verse means. And the writer of Hebrews would say, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Even so, Jesus Christ has once appeared now in the end of time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We could ask Peter what these words mean, and Peter would say, Christ died, the just for the unjust. And I saved my favorite to last, Paul. Paul, who lives and breathes the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ, Paul would say, you know, he was delivered over to death for our transgressions, and he was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were without strength, verse 6 of Romans 5, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, verse 8, when we were even his enemies, we hated God, we were in opposition against God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He took our place. One of Paul's statements of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And then my favorite, 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a two-way transaction that that verse is describing. He took our place in moral standing. He who was not a sinner was judged as if he were a sinner so that we might take his place in moral standing. We who were sinners are regarded as though we aren't. Because God took our sins and placed them on Jesus. Sins that were not his own. And he took Jesus' righteousness, a righteousness which was not our own, and he gave it to us. So that when we stand before God, he sees the righteousness of his Son. That's the gospel. And we... And really, folks, it does not matter what sin you bring or what sin you agonize or what sin you struggle with. There's nothing too great that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. John says, the blood of Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from what? All sin. All sin. 
And you, you, whatever sin you're wrestling with, whatever sin you think you've committed that cannot be forgiven, God took all of those in one stinking heap and put them on Jesus because he took your place. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He not only was separated from the Father because of our sin, number two, he substituted himself for our sin. Then number three, Number three, he was victorious over our sin. He provided victory over our sin. Now this point is not immediately obvious because my God, my God, why have you forsaken me does not sound like a cry of victory. This is where we have to look at this passage in its context. So go back with me to Psalm 22. I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned in this service um, in case I didn't, I'll say, it, uh, I'll say it again. Every single one of Jesus' last words on the cross had an Old Testament background to it. Every single one of them you can trace back to the Old Testament, which is Jesus' way of saying that the death that I am dying was fulfilled and anticipated, anticipated by and fulfilled, uh, fulfilled all that the Old Testament writers looked for anticipated. So Paul could say, for example, in Romans 3, that now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed, even the righteousness of God, which is uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, but after, before that he says, this is borne witness to by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament anticipated this. So Psalm 22.1 is the verse that Jesus references. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I need to state the obvious for you. Psalm 22 does not end at verse 1. We are so used to thinking of chapter and verse divisions that we forget those things didn't exist in biblical times. Old, you know, you wouldn't have somebody in the first century saying, turn in your scrolls to Haggai 3.1. And every, you know, they wouldn't be doing that. They would be doing something like, as Haggai said, they would quote the verse or how, you know, whatever reference they were making because it was understood, particularly in the Jewish culture, that when you're quoting a particular verse, you're thinking of a verse in terms of its broader context. And you probably heard this over and over and over again here, that a text without a context is a pretext. You cannot interpret texts apart from their context. The point is that if Jesus simply wanted to, to utter a state of abandonment, he could have quoted a number of other passages that did so without there being any hope. I give two of them in, in your notes there. We won't look at them. Jeremiah 20 and uh, Lamentations, I think it's uh, 3, uh, where Jesus could have, um, uh, you know, could have quoted those passages. That was all that was going on. But he quotes this one. He quotes this text. There are four things about Psalm 22.1 that I simply, very quickly in the time that I have left, want to highlight for you. The first one is very, very obvious. Psalm 22.1 is Scripture. It's Scripture. You might think, well, duh, tell me something I don't already know. But don't let the fact that when Jesus was at his utter extreme agony that the first thing he did was to go to Scripture. Isn't that what we should do when we face the same kind of circumstances? Go back to the Word of God? 
not only to provide an interpretation of what it, what it is we're going through, but also to provide the strength to endure what we're going through without succumbing to temptation in the process, right? Isn't that what Psalm 119 says? How does a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word with my whole heart have I saw you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. When Jesus was tempted three times, he kept responding back with, it is written. And when he faces this, the ultimate agony of his life, when the temptation to get off of the cross would have been the fiercest, because now the pain is more than just physical. It's spiritual. He'd already, he'd been tasting for three hours the agony of what hell was like. So he goes back to the word of God to keep him. That's victory. Psalm 22, one is scripture. Number two, Psalm 22 is messianic. It isn't just that Jesus was quoting whatever verse happened to pop into his mind. He quotes a psalm that speaks of him. And you can read through Psalm 22 and you can see uh, these words as they relate to him. I'm just going to pick up on a few of them. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs and company, uh, encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's almost like David is transported a thousand years ahead of time and is standing there at the cross taking notes. Because this passage speaks of Jesus. And Jesus knew this. He knew this passage spoke of him. He knew this passage began with a statement of God abandonness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this did not catch Jesus off guard. This did not catch Jesus by surprise. He is not asking God this question, why have you forsaken me? Because he doesn't know the answer. In fact, verse 3 gives the answer because God is holy. And because God is holy, he must judge sin. And for Jesus Christ to come to the point when he would endure in our body, in his body, the penalty of our sins, he had to come to the point of God forsakenness, and he knew this. He knew that it would mean a spiritual separation of fellowship with his Father, and it was the dread of this and the agony of this that pervaded Jesus' ministry, the anticipation that this would happen. Even to the point... The night before his crucifixion, when he's praying in the garden, he says, my father, if it be your will, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he knew what it involved. He knew it involved God forsakenness. And Psalm 22 predicted it. Number three, Psalm 22 as victorious. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Between verses 21 and 22 of Psalm 22, there is a decided change of tone. Verse 21, let me just uh, read this to put it in this context. You still have David here writing prophetically of Jesus, crying out in agony, save me from the mouth of the lion. 
You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then you have verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. God did hear when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did deliver him. That's where the resurrection comes into play. But verses 22 and 23, I don't know if you noticed this, but these verses are actually quoted in Hebrews 2 in connection with the work of Christ in the cross. I will declare your name to a generation that's yet to be born, verse 30. Now I want to show you something else. Remember I said that each of the words of Christ had an Old Testament background to them. We already looked at verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look again with me at verse 15. 22 verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. What does that sound like in a Hebrew way of putting it? Somebody said it. Thirst. What was the next word of Christ in the cross? I thirst. Go to the end of Psalm 22, verse 31. I've got to read verse 30 as well. Posterity will serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to a coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And then notice the next words, that he has done it. In Hebrew, that's one word. Anybody want to guess what that word is? Finished. To die. It is finished. So, the fourth word of Jesus from the cross comes from Psalm 22.1. The fifth word comes from the middle of the psalm. The sixth word comes from the end of the psalm. Jesus was thinking of the whole psalm. Amen. And it does begin with God forsakenness, but it ends in victory. Amen. That's the point. And Jesus experienced ultimate and actual God forsakenness, but the victory came at the resurrection. The victory came at the resurrection. Jesus not only knew how Psalm 22-1 began, but he knew how it ended. It began in despair, but it ends in victory. Because if Jesus' death did not provide the basis for victory over our sin, we would be continually succumbing to it, even though Christ redeemed us. But because Jesus redeemed us, we not only are saved from the penalty of sin, but we're being saved right now from the power of sin. Sin will not have dominion over you because you're, under, you're not under law but under grace. And guess what? One day when we get to be with Jesus, we'll even be saved from the very presence of sin. It will be, it has been, is being, and will be finally and completely defeated because Jesus was victorious. 
And then Psalm 22, in the last little thing in your notes there, it actually introduces a trilogy of psalms that are all about the person and the work of Christ. Psalm 22, his first advent work. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's what he does now between his two comings. Psalm 24 is a millennial psalm. It's what he's going to do when he sets up his kingdom on earth. You have a full or picture of what Jesus is going to do because he's victorious. So as we meditate and as we think about observing the Lord's table, we've observed it this morning, we've sung songs about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we've prayed to him, I pray that this passage, as profound as it is, and we've only been able to barely scratch the surface of what's here this morning, but please, brothers and sisters, walk away with this, that Whatever else Matthew 27, 46 means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It means at the very least that Jesus was separated from the Father because of our sin. He substituted himself for our sin. And in the process, he was victorious over our sin. And that's the gospel. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the, so much of the reality that is ours because of what you accomplished. We even sang earlier that if our God is for us, who can be against us? What makes that true? Because the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over freely for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And because of that, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because Jesus endured this separation for a short period of time, but in that short period of time, he endured the agony of an eternity of difference, of, of separation, of hell for us. Lord, I pray the gospel will never get old for us. Keep us, keep us awed in amazement and wonderment that you would do this for us. Help my brothers and sisters. And if there's any here that have never trusted in you, God, would you grant them the faith to believe? Would they recognize that only through Jesus can we possibly have the problem of our sins dealt with and stand righteous before you? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We thank you for this time we've had together. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Mm -hmm.